You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Yeah, good, man. Everybody's sounding so alert and spry this morning. That's wonderful. I love it when you're this way. This is great. It's going to be good energy for me. Uh, if you're a guest, I want to say a special welcome to you. We are so glad that you're here. My name is Michael Bailey. I am one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship. We are pumped that you opted to spend your Sunday morning with us as uh, we get together as a little family. We are in week seven of our eight-week series that we are entitling In Columbia As It Is In Heaven. And if you're just joining us, I want to give you the gist of where all this comes from. So the the title of our series comes from the way that Jesus teaches us to pray for his kingdom, that God would increasingly bring his good and redeeming reign into the world, and that our community, the Columbia area, Lexington, that our community would more and more look like heaven day by day. And specifically what we're focusing on is God's strategy to accomplish this, like his plan for how he intends on establishing his kingdom here in our midst. And his strategy is very simple. It's his people. His church, you and I, we are God's plan for establishing the message of Jesus across our community such that lives in our community would be changed. His strategy is us, armed and equipped with the good news of Jesus, whose lives now show off the compelling new reality of life under God's rule and reign. And so what we've been doing with this series specifically is we've been covering a few of the practices of disciples of Jesus, the things that followers of Jesus do. And so to give you a rundown, we began this whole thing by saying that all of this starts with us being a people who are, in our language, with Jesus. That we are a people who are with Jesus, or in the language of the scriptures, a people who abide or make their home in God. We said that the way that we accomplish this or the way that we go about this is by connecting with his spirit via via what he has given us through his word, the Bible, and prayer, that these, are the, that these practices are the lifelines, so to speak, of Christian discipleship. And then we talked about the practice of community, uh, that the call to follow Jesus is always a call to community, that to follow Jesus is actually to follow Jesus together. And we talked about the practice of intentionally committing our lives to God's people, to belonging to his church specifically. Then we talked about, uh, we hit confession and repentance, that life in God's kingdom is a life of walking in the light, uh, meaning that we walk in honesty about ourselves and in submission to God's good rule and reign. We talked about the practices of hospitality and generosity, that followers of Jesus are a people who live beyond themselves, who live for God's kingdom in our world and leverage our lives for what he is doing here, that we live in such a way to where we want to see the kingdom come, trusting God with everything we have, trusting God with our lives and our resources and giving ourselves to welcoming more and more people into his family. And the practice we're going to talk talk about today is actually going to build off of that idea just a little bit, okay? Uh, As we near the end of our journey, we're going to talk about the practice of serving. Here's how it reads in our member covenant. We say that serving is a way God works through us to love others. Therefore, we commit to using our spirit-empowered giftedness to serve our church according to our season of life. So last week, our practice was generosity. And we said that uh, when it comes to generosity, this is probably a practice that we 
tend to collectively be weak in. This week, I would actually say that the opposite is true. I would say that serving is a particular strength for our church. Somewhere along the lines of like 85% of our missionary members currently serve in some capacity. And that's not even to include the, the, num, uh, the uh, excuse me, I'm stumbling over my words. Uh, that does not include those of you who aren't missionary members who give your time and energy to serve in some way, whether that be with Kid Town or our host team or our serve, the city partnerships, whatever it may be. And I'll be really honest with you. Uh, those are numbers that would make church leaders in other places very jealous, all right? Very, very jealous to have 85% of the people who call this church home actually give their time and energy for what we are doing together. It is an amazing thing. We have a very, very encouraging culture in this regard. And so my goal today, to be honest with you, is not to sit here and somehow try to coax you into doing more, to coax you into serving more. I think that would be a miss, right? Because you're already doing an absolutely wonderful job there. I will admit for some of you that may need to be the application, but that's not actually my goal for our time today. What I want to attempt to do today, rather, is give you a new understanding or a new way of understanding the things that you are already doing to perhaps even deepen or broaden your perspective on what it means to serve as a disciple of Jesus. I want to give us fresh eyes, so to speak, to see what many of us are already engaged in doing. And so to do that, we're going to begin by looking at Romans 12 this morning, specifically verses 9 through 10. So if you want to grab a Bible and turn there, there are some located underneath the seats you're sitting in, or you can flip open to it in your phone, whatever it is, your preferred method of reading the Bible. But we're going to be in verses 9 through 10, and to give you a little bit of context as to where we're going to be at. Um, basically, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has just finished unpacking for us one of the, uh, one of the most thorough examinations of God's grace and mercy to us through Jesus in the entire Bible. He has expounded on the beauties of the gospel in 11 full chapters. And in chapter 12, he pivots. And he goes, since all of this is true, since Jesus has saved you from your sins, since he has saved you from your sin and made you right with God, since he has justified you by faith and made you a part of his people, here is how that ought to affect your life. Here is how it ought to affect the way you live, the way you think, and the things that you do. Now, we did a whole series on Romans 12 a few years ago, and I highly recommend that you go check it out, but this is the gist of Romans 12. Paul is unpacking for us God's vision for his people to be a community of love. And I want to draw your attention to one way he talks about it in verses 9 through 10. Let's begin. He says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, it might read like the Bible is saying four different things here, but it's really just saying the same thing in a few different ways. To love. That what ought to be definitive about us as a people is that we are a people who love, who love each other sincerely, meaning genuinely. That type of love that wants good for each other and hates evil uh, in each other. The type of love that's like family, like brothers and sisters. But let me draw your attention to the last one. We are to love one another by outdoing one another in showing honor. Now, 
honor isn't really a word that we throw around much anymore. Like, I don't know about you, but in my head, when I think about honor, my brain typically goes to things like funeral services or special holidays or the last samurai, things of that nature, right? Like we, we say we honor moms on Mother's Day and deceased veterans on Memorial Day, but like, what do we even really mean by that, right? Like we, we take a day off of work and we grill is that the extent of honoring where we take mom out to her favorite restaurant and give her macaroni art that she's certainly never going to throw away, right? Like she'd never, ever do that. Like, is this, is this what we mean by honor? Well, the biblical definition actually goes a little bit deeper than that. Uh, the Greek word for honor in the scriptures can also be translated value or price. Value or price. Originally, it was a financial word, and to honor someone was to give to them a gift, be it money or a thing, in keeping with their value or status. It's where we get the concept of an honorarium from. This is where this idea comes from. And so to honor someone is essentially to assign value to them. To honor someone is to assign value to them, or, to, or rather to recognize the value that they bring inherently to our community. The easiest way for me to understand honor is using uh, stuff like the high and low language. Here's what I mean. When we honor someone, we elevate them to a high status in our lives or our community. We hold them in high regard, especially over and above ourselves, right? When we honor, we are willing to lower ourselves in order to lift somebody else up. We're saying, you are special. You are important. You have worth and value here. So this is probably a rather silly example, but I think it kind of drives this point home. Uh, if you've been around us for any amount of time, you know where my college football loyalties lie, all right? You know where this is at. It's with the team, with the school, in the upstate. But all that being said, several years ago, a particularly famous running back from the University of South Carolina came to one of our uh, events as a church. And here's the deal. I don't care who you pull for, if you are a person who wishes they were athletically great, okay, who wishes they were athletically great, but is athletically average to below average like me, when you're in the presence of athletic greatness, you just get a little fanboyish, okay? You really do. Like, it doesn't matter who they play for. You just kind of get all giddy inside. And that's exactly what I did. I leaned over to one of my buddies who was at the event. And I, said, I said, hey, dude, dude, do you see that guy right there? No, no, not him, the big one, that guy. Yeah, you see him? That's Marcus. That is Marcus. I, I got to go talk to him. I don't have any idea what I'm going to say. I got to go talk to him. And so me and my buddy, we were like, all right, let's go. Let's go. You know, we walked to him. We're like, Marcus, it's so good to see you, dude. It is such an honor that you are here. We're so glad to have you. Is there anything we can get for you? And we kind of just tripped over ourselves, making much of this running back who was in our midst. And the entire time, we probably looked utterly ridiculous, but the entire time we were like, hey, Marcus, anything we can do for you, man? No? No? Cool. Awesome. Marcus, hey, are you comfortable? Oh, you are? Great. Awesome. So, so glad. We looked like utter fools, but we didn't care. It was Marcus Lattimore, right? Like he was so important. Paul's point in Romans 12 is that that is actually the shape our love should take towards each other. Like what if we were to treat everyone that way? Like, hey, hey dude, you see that woman right there? That's Jill with two kids. Oh my gosh. I, I can't believe it. I've, I got to I gotta go talk to her. I gotta see how she does it. Jill, Jill, it is 
such an honor to meet you. Is there anything I can get for you? Do you need anything? Oh, that's so great. Like you sit there and look at me funny right now and kind of slightly giggle to yourself because of course we don't do that, right? Like why would we do that? Who would do that? The truth is, is that Jesus would do that. The truth is, is that Jesus's people would do that. And that's what it means when he says to outdo one another in showing honor that you and I would have this disposition or this posture towards one another such that we are constantly wanting to lift each other up, defer to each other's needs, and ensure that each, other, that each of us is well taken care of. Where each and every person in our midst is valued like they are the most important person in the world. A community of honor is one where value, respect, gratitude, appreciation, acknowledgement, recognition, generosity, and others-centered love just flows freely among its members. And this is what the church is meant to be. However, that is a remarkably challenging idea, right? It's a remarkably challenging idea, is it not? This is often just simply not our default mode. It is not how we tend to think of the people that we sit beside, the people that we interact with, the people that we share our lives with. The default mode of the simple human heart does not veer towards honor, but rather it veers towards contempt. You see, contempt is actually the opposite of honor. If honor is lifting high, contempt is dragging low, right? Contempt is when we elevate ourselves instead of others, and tend to look down on others, viewing someone or something as beneath our consideration. It can be a mixture of emotions like anger and disgust combined with a little bit of arrogance, the things we think in our head of, oh, I just can't believe they would say something like that. Can you believe who they are? Oh, you gotta be kidding me. They're here today. I'm gonna make sure I sit on the opposite side of the room. And to be clear, our culture just kind of cultivates this, right? Like the world we live in cultivates contempt. We live in what I heard one pastor call a culture of contempt, where contempt, this negative disposition or this looking down disposition towards other people is the norm. Easy example, honestly, is just your social media feed. Like it doesn't take 20 minutes on social media before you start seeing this all over the place. It seems like every day there's a new outrage or a fight going down in 280 characters or less and a fight to gain attention or likes or follows or retweets. We've become a people who resort to hot takes and oversimplification of complex issues and pushes towards the extreme. Things like decency and nuance and charity, they just don't get a lot of airtime. And this extremism affects the way we view people. We lower their value in our minds based upon what they put out there on the internet. We take a little piece of them that is wrong or perhaps that we don't like or is somewhat annoying and we make it their whole. In short, we basically take their bad, the bad qualities of them and then view their entire person through that lens. And it's not, it's not just an out there problem. It's not just a thing that happens in our culture, but it's an internal problem. It happens in us. I see it in myself all the time. I mean, think about it this way. Think about how much mental space and energy you use to talk about people who aren't doing it right, whatever it may be for you. How do you feel about them if you're honest? Perhaps people who sit on the opposite side of the ideological party line than you. How do you think about them? How do you treat them? What do you say about them when they're not looking? 
Additionally, we use our words to tear each other down, to put others in their place, if I may. And our default modes of humor become sarcasm and jokes at others' expense. And we justify it by saying like, oh, well, they know I don't really mean it. And that's, how, that's what we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel a little bit better about things. But think about the last time that someone came to you and offered incredibly meaningful words of encouragement to you or did something to bless you without any expectation of you doing something in return, like something to strictly build you up. How awkward did that feel for you, right? Like, how weird was that? Because it basically never happens. On the flip side, think about the last time you've done that for someone. You probably haven't, by the way, right? And I don't say that to make any of us feel bad, but rather just to point out that our default isn't this type of other-centeredness but rather to concern ourselves with ourselves first and foremost, to cater to our own interests at the expense of those around us. You see, we tend to have a utilitarian view of others and relationships at best, right? Where we value people as long as they are useful to us. As long as they bring some sort of added benefit into my life, then I will hold them in high regard. But if they don't, well, then they just get relegated. And we believe that that is completely okay and natural for us to do. This tends to be the game that we all get stuck in as sinful humans in the midst of a sinful culture. We value ourselves ahead of others. But the reality is, is this is simply not the way of Jesus. This is not the type of thing that Jesus would embody. Let me show you what I mean. Let's flip over to to Matthew 20 uh, for a few moments. We're going to be in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Some quick context for this passage. Jesus is getting his disciples ready for what's about to happen to him. That He's, about, he's telling them he's about to be crucified and resurrected. So before these verses, he huddles up the 12 together and point blankly says, hey, look, we're about to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to get killed and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And that's where we pick up in verse 20. It says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to her with her son, came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. Essentially, she just asked, when you bring your kingdom, when you establish your rule and reign, let my boys be your two top officials. Let them be your VP and your secretary of state, for lack of a better way of describing it. Listen, I don't know how much you know about getting promotions, okay? But having your mom go in and ask for it for you that's not a good look, all right? That's just, in general, not a good look. It's a pretty bold strategy, Cotton, and an even bolder request. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink, meaning the suffering he is about to endure? And they said to him, we are able, oh, to be young and naively confident, right? Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. He says, you're going to drink the cup that I will drink, but it's not even my role to grant those positions. Never mind, it's not your role to assume them. And as you you can probably imagine, this whole scene does not go over very well with the rest of the squad. Verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, which totally makes sense. Like, bro, you got your mom to go in and ask for a promotion for you? What do you think you are? Do you think you're better than us? And so Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them something very important about being his disciple. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. He flips the script on them. He says, this is not how greatness works in my kingdom. The disciples were playing the exact same game that all of us are guilty of playing, jockeying for position, thinking about our value and our advantage over and above everyone else. And yet Jesus says, what makes someone great in my kingdom, it's not about how much power or authority or the position you have. It's not about your place in the world or what people do for you, but in how you serve other people how you lay yourself down for those around you. In my kingdom, the way up is actually down. And look at verse 28. This is important and where we see the connection to Romans 12. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Usually when you see this word ransom uh, in the scriptures, the Greek, uh, the Greek word gets translated in the New Testament as redeem. It's the same word. It comes from the Greek word, which means to loosen, all right? And it's virtually always meant throughout history to unchain somebody. More specifically, ransom is a buying a person out of captivity. Essentially, ransom is a cost, Ransom is a price. It's the amount that is substitutionary in character that affects the freedom of some, from some kind of bondage. Now, here's the thing. The ransom you are willing to pay is directly correlated with how valuable you hold that ransom person to be. The ransom you're willing to pay is directly correlated to how valuable you believe the ransom person to be. So when I think about Ransom, the movie Taken always comes to my mind. Uh, it's a little bit old now, but you, you're probably familiar with it. When Liam Neeson discovers that his daughter has been taken and kidnapped, he's on the phone with the kidnap, kidnap, excuse me, kidnappers, and he gives that iconic line, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for Ransom, I don't have a lot of money. But what I do have is a particular set of skills, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. And it kind of gets my blood going a little bit, right? Like I hear him say that, and I'm like, yeah, my man's about to do work right here. But this response makes complete and total sense to us, right? Like, because it's his daughter. So he doesn't have the money to pay the ransom. So he is willing to do whatever it takes to get his daughter back, right? To, he is willing to put his own life in danger because she is that valuable to him. Can you imagine how much differently that movie would be if the kidnappers had not taken her, his daughter, but took his dog? Like it immediately goes from action thriller to comedy in the blink of an eye. Like, bro, Fluffy's not worth it. What are you doing, right? Because the daughter has way more, valuable, more value than the dog. And here's the point. I know I just offended some of you dog people in here. Get over it. Dogs don't have souls. Whatever. Uh, email me. It's fine. Uh, but here's the point, all right? Here's the point in all of that. Jesus here is talking about the work he is fixing to do on the cross, giving his life for our ransom, to ransom us from our bondage to sin, to buy us back from sin and all that sin deserves, to give us a place in God's kingdom. He's talking about how he is lowering, lowering himself to raise us up. He gave his life so that we might gain life. He took the punishment so that we might actually be the ones who go free. He faced rejection 
so that we might be accepted. The Almighty willingly lowered himself at an infinite cost to himself so that he might raise us up to make his enemies his family. And what this reality ought to tell us is one, just how unbelievably valuable humanity is to Jesus, including you, that the price he was willing to pay was his life. And two, it should shape our honor for one another. It should affect the shape our honor for one another, how it, what it ought to look like. So you see what he's saying? As I have valued you, worthy of giving my life for you, so you ought to value one another the exact same. As I have valued you to lay down my complete self for you, you ought to honor one another in the same way. And at its core, this is what serving actually is. Serving is honor in action. Serving is honor in action. It's saying with our time and our energy, our skills and abilities, that as Jesus has valued you, so now do I. I will show you with my life the value you have, that I value you higher than myself, that you have worth and dignity and honor, and I am going to show it to you. When we serve, we give others the value that Christ has given them by serving them with our attitudes and our words and our actions. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it in The Weight of Glory. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. He's saying that the way we ought to see those around us is that we should see everyone for the eternally valuable person that they are and respond accordingly. That when we look at each other, we are not looking at mere mortals, but we are looking at people who are loved by God, who Jesus bled and died for. And if that's their value, then we ought to act a certain way towards each other. So serving is getting dirty so that someone else can stay clean. Someone, serving is choosing to sweat so that somebody else could stay dry. Taking weight and relieving the burden. Taking the heat in order to provide shade because this is what Jesus has done for us. So hopefully this helps you see that there is much more going on when you serve than simply meeting a need or doing something that has to get done, right? There's more going on to it than that. When you serve, you are assigning value. You are giving honor to the people you serve. So when you're one of the small army of folks giving your time and energy to serve in Kidtown, you're not just embracing the chaos, you're not just doing this thing so that we can have a distraction-free environment in here, free from cries and chaos and all that kind of stuff. You're not just meeting that need. That's not what's happening. You are saying to our kids, kids, you have value. You are loved by God and have worth. By my endurance of the chaos to tell you about Jesus, I am showing you that Jesus loves you and you are worth something to him. You are saying to parents, parents, your family matters. Your family matters, and so I want to walk alongside you and love you and serve you to help you raise kids who love Jesus. And parents, I want to give you the opportunity to go and love Jesus yourself, to give you the opportunity to undistractedly hear God's word proclaimed so that your life will be spurred on to faith and trust and love and following of Jesus. You are coming alongside parents saying, parents, you matter. When you're one of the squad who helps set up this whole space on Sunday mornings, you're not just hanging pipe and drape though we do a lot of hanging pipe and drape for sure. 
But you're not just hanging pipe and drape on Sunday mornings. You're not just plugging in wires. You are saying that the people who will be here today matter to God. These people matter. So their time here to get to focus on him, it matters to me. So I will do the hard things so that they can draw near to him. You are bestowing value and honor on every single person who sits in these seats by hanging pipe and drape and plugging in wires. That's what's actually going on. But hopefully you see that this cannot just be limited to the formal things that we do as a church. Like it can't just be limited to our volunteer teams or the efforts we do with Serve the City. That Jesus's vision for this type of person, it's bigger than that. And it certainly includes all of those things. But it has more to do with the ways that you treat your spouse and your kids, how you interact with your neighbors and your coworkers, or even all the way down to how you respond to your enemies, physical or ideological, or simply the person who annoys every fiber of your being. This is the call of Jesus on our lives, that Jesus's people are to, are to be defined by a posture that gives their time, energy, skills, abilities, and resources for the good of those around us, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done or have done to you. I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, it's about a young couple in uh, my life group. Uh, listen, there are lots of things that a young couple could do with their time in this stage of life, right? That nobody would bat an eye at. Like if you're young, together, have no kids, you essentially have relatively unlimited free time. Like you still have to work, but there's a lot of free space that you still have in your life. And so no one would bat an eye if you use that time to travel, to go see the world or spend your weekends out at whatever the new restaurant or scene is out there. There's a lot, there's a lot of stuff you could be doing that doesn't include concerning yourself with the health of your middle-aged pastor and his wife and their marriage, right? Like lots of things that people would be totally okay with. But this particular couple noticed that my wife and I had been particularly burning the candle at, uh, on both ends uh, during this season of our life. And we hadn't really been making a lot of time for each other. And so one random day, they came up to us and just simply said, all right, hey, look, here are three dates. I want you to pick one and we're just gonna come over and we're keeping your kids and you're going out on a date. Do not argue. This is what is going to happen. Lauren and I were like, well, well, okay, sounds good. All right, all right. So I guess we need to actually look at, look at our calendars here. And so they show up at our house and, they, and when they get there, they come on in. I mean, they're great with our kids. I mean, they're like family to us. And so come on in, making themselves at home. Right as we're heading out the door, one of them hands us an envelope and says, oh, by the way, here's the money for your date. Go out and have a nice time and do not try to give this back. You are loved and we value you. Get out of here. And Lauren, we, we really didn't know what to do, just to be honest with you. We were like, uh, what? And so we're like, thank you so much. We go out to the car, we just look at each other, and then just tears. Like, just tears, you know? Absolutely wrecked us. And it was so beautiful. And look, I'm not telling you that as like some sort of shameless plug to get some free date nights off the rest of you, all right? <laughs> like, that's, that's not my goal. Hey, if you want to do that, I'm not going to say no. I've learned my lesson. Uh, that's not why I'm telling you that. Uh, I'm telling you that so that you see that God has put similar opportunities to love, honor, and serve as Christ has served you in front of you every day. There are opportunities just like that right in front of your nose with your spouses, with your children, with your roommates, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, and with your life groups. Opportunities to serve, to bless, to honor in both word and action. 
If you have roommates, then you have the opportunity to learn to enjoy making sure that you watch what they want to watch instead of what you want to watch all the time. That sounds simple, but what you're saying in those moments is, hey, I value you and your preferences. I want to put them ahead of my own, that your enjoyment is actually my enjoyment. When you willingly cover the shift for that coworker that grinds every last gear in your soul, you are stepping into the chance to tell them that despite the frustrating parts of their personality, they are a person who is loved by God and you want to show them that. Spouses, when you take on the extra weight of the household work so that your spouse can catch a break to recharge or do something that they enjoy for a change, you have the opportunity to tell them that you are valued here and your health and your peace and your vitality are more important to me than even my own. And all of that may seem like very, very small stuff, but it isn't. It really isn't. They are small actions with eternal significance when coming from a heart of love and honor. I love how Paul says it back in verse 10. He says, outdo one another. Almost like it's a bit of a competition, which I just love, right? Like, I lo- give me a good competition. I have a lot of fun with that. Essentially, he's saying that the church ought to be, in some respects, in a holy way, kind of battling it out with each other of like, no, I'm going to honor you more. No, 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 I'm going to honor you more. No, I'm going to serve you more. No, I'm going to serve you more, and back and forth, and so on and so forth. And it sounds silly, but it's what he's saying, that as a community, our aim ought to be tripping over itself to honor one another. Where the disposition we are taking is that no one here is going to serve more than I'm serving where I'm constantly blessing others at my own expense. And I think a piece of this is it's not just a call to serve, but the call of Jesus is to be a people who so highly value one another that we actually enjoy meeting the needs of each other, that we enjoy the sacrifice, that we enjoy the expense of energy to help to lift someone else up above ourselves. As the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, for it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. That it was his joy to willingly go and lay his life down for us. This is Jesus's vision for his people. This is what spiritual community, I mean, excuse me, spiritual maturity actually looks like. And truthfully, it's beautiful. Like, who wouldn't want to be a part of a people like that, tripping over themselves to show honor to one another? But the question, of course, is, how do we get there? How do we embody this ethos within us? And truthfully, there's nothing shiny or new about the answer. It's really, really simple. It starts with repentance and turning to Jesus, like always. It starts with us first examining our hearts and saying, hey, am I valuing myself over other people? Like, am I serving, but really just serving in a self, sort of a self-serving way so that I feel, I feel good about what I've done and I can say, yeah, you see, I met the need, I did the thing. But does our service actually come from a place of, man, these people are valuable to Jesus and I want to embody that towards them. So we repent of those off motivations, and we come to Jesus. As is the case with all spiritual growth, the journey to becoming a person of honor begins with remembering how Christ has already shown honor to you, how Christ has already served you, 
how Jesus has already outdone us in showing honor to us, that in Christ you have been served. In Christ, you have been granted an honor and a value that is incomparable with anything the world might have to offer you. That through the service of Christ, God, our great King and Father, calls you son or daughter. And this brings you freedom from the game, right? It brings you freedom from the game because here's the deal. You can't honor others when you are too busy trying to get honor for yourself, right? You have to be shored up internally before you'll ever be able to truly serve without being self-serving. And this is what Jesus offers. An escape. An escape to no longer jockey for position on any sort of social ladder. To escape any sort of demand from honor from others. And it frees you to notice others, their needs, and enjoy honoring and serving them to ascribe to them the value that God has attributed to us all through his death and resurrection. And from there, it's just a matter of getting in the game then. From there, it's just a matter of stepping up to the plate and starting to serve. The way we've talked about it before is the things we do do things to us. The things you do do things to you. The reality of it is, is you will never become a person who enjoys meeting the needs of others until you become a person who actually does it before you enjoy it. This is why we do formal things like Kid Town and Serve the City and all the rest. It's not that these things are the destination. You can serve at Kid Town and not be the type of person that we're talking about here. You feel me? But these things do get us on the road. To put it another way, you will never be a person who enjoys changing diapers until you're a person who is first willing to do it. Small word to parents on this. I just want to say a quick word to you. A lot of the practicals of all of this content, you will probably connect to your kids. Learning to enjoy doing the things your kids need, that's a perfectly respectable application of this, to think about how you as a parent need to grow in serving your children. However, there is also an element of this that it's your job to teach your kids to enjoy meeting the needs of others. And if you only and always serve your children and never step out with your family to do something that benefits nobody, somebody else other than yourself, you are only going to teach your children that they exist to be served and not to serve. And I just want to throw that out there for you because I think we got to take that home. Because the things we do, do things to us. And it's true for you and for your children. We are commanded to love and to serve and to honor. We must follow our Lord and Savior in obedience, often in spite of how we feel. We serve first, and then we let our feelings catch up with our actions, praying for God to change us in the process. And the, rea- and the, and the good news of it all is that he will. He promises to do that. As we walk in repentance and faith and obedience, Jesus molds and makes us into the people he is calling us to be. So let's get at it. Let me pray for you. God, thank you uh, for our time together this morning. Uh, Just to be reminded of how you have served us. And God, I pray that uh, for many of us, that that is the thing that we walk away with this morning, is recognizing that in in you, we have been served in an unfathomable way. Uh, That you laid down your life on our behalf. And that was not something that we deserved or earned or merited on our own, but something that you and your free grace just did for us. And God, I pray that that good news, uh, I pray that that reality would have its intended effect in our souls, that you would lead us into trust in you and then turn us outward to be a people who love in that exact same way. 
God, I pray that here you would help us to have a culture of honor where we are constantly tripping over ourselves to lift each other up, to defer to each other, to want good for each other, and to meet the needs of one another to ensure that we are taken care of, God, because this is what you have called us to. And so for the myriad of ways that we could apply this content today, God, I just pray that your spirit uh, would help us to see how we need to step into this, to help us see the opportunities that are right in front of us, the areas where you are calling us to lay down our lives as you have laid down yours for the good of those who are around us, whether that be at home with our spouses or our kids, whether that be at work uh, or in our life group or wherever else, God, and help us faithfully step in to being a serving people as you have called us. God, we are grateful for your grace and your mercy to us. We truly would be up a creek without a paddle, without it. And so thank you for all that you've done and who you are. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio from Midtown Fellowship in Lexington. We are in the middle of a two-month capital campaign to raise money to buy a permanent facility on East Main Street, right in the heart of Lexington, South Carolina. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate. Feel free to visit movetoeastmain.com for more information.